Hi everyone, welcome back to Life on Side B. We're continuing our top 10 countdown of the top 10 most listened to episodes over the first two years. May 1st was our two-year birthday since we launched that first episode where I got to interview Meg on communal uh, living. I think that was what it was called. Communal living. Yes, that's it. That's it. I think so. I remember these things. Anyway, um, in our last episode, we went over numbers 10 through 6, which covered um, Max on celibate partnerships, Bridget on victimization and criticism, where she talked with Grant, Grant, Mary, Michelle, Josh, and Josh on things straight people say, Peter on side B theology, and Lisa on mixed orientation marriage, the straight perspective. So we got through all of those in the last episode. Today, we're going to go through the top five. In this one, I'm going to give you guys a little bit more detail. Uh, we're going to I'll give a little bit more insight of um, what it was, what my thoughts were, what I learned from these top five episodes so far of the podcast. And um, we'll still listen to some clips from each one. But anyway, uh, yeah. And again, you know, our top 10 vary depending on the time. Obviously, as we record new episodes, there are new top 10s. There are new episodes that rise, other ones that fall. Sometimes an episode will rise and then head down and then come back up. And sometimes I'm surprised by how long it takes an episode to get to the top Um 10. So anyway, we're going to get on this journey. It's going to be fun. Um, at least I hope it's fun. I hope this is worth it for y'all to listen to <laughs> or to, well, I guess listen to it because we're not doing a video, but um, hoping we can bring something to the, new to the table, even if you've already listened to these episodes before. Before we get into it, I have one really important but quick announcement. We have officially rescheduled the uh, live episode where the co-hosts will be talking about the sides terminology. If you listen to the last episode, we had to cancel, well, postpone it um, because of my family emergency. And so now we have a new day and time. That will be on May 20th at 9.15 U.S. Eastern Time. So if you already signed up and sent in your information for the first live episode, do not worry. We, you do not need to re-sign up. Um, we already have your information. But uh, we will be sending out the link again for that for anyone who has not signed up yet and you are interested. Again, it is free. Just go ahead and fill out the form. It'll be in the link um, in the dis episode description of this episode as well as in um, – our social media, our website, all of that stuff. So go ahead, send your information in there. And then the day of the live episode, we will send you the link. So that's our one an announcement for today. Anyway. All right. Well, with that, um, we are going to start with number five. I am, you know, speaking of episodes that took a while to get to the top five uh, or top 10, this is one that is one of the earliest ones we recorded. Um, it's Josh and Michelle on family and friendship. Um, this is not one that we, I initially had on the list of episodes for season one. When I originally was creating the concept of Life on Side B season one, um, I didn't have this on the list. And I've talked about this before. It was really my brother, Ed, who was saying, hey, and I think there was a few others people, but I remember him saying it like, hey, 
you're doing great, but no one really knows you, honestly. And so you should talk about who you are, your story, these kind of things. And so had Michelle come on, we talked about life. Um, we, we did a little bit of my story and then we talked about our really, like our friendship, our chosen family really around us. And, um, it was a really good talk at the same time. I've actually learned a lot. I, I, I talked about this in the episode with Ashley just a few weeks ago on the potential power and harm of our story. This is an episode I actually thought a while about deleting mostly because I've learned a lot about my own story since then. Um, It's just, you know, I think over time we understand more about ourselves and that brings about a better understanding of our past as well as our future. Uh, I don't think that the past is static many times. um, I think that's why we have four gospels. I think I talked about that again in the episode with Ashley, but Many times the way we communicate our our stories, our histories, is in a way of giving meaning to it. And obviously the way I gave meaning to it then is not necessarily any less true. But now I have been able to get a new perspective, which gives new and deeper and more complex meaning to it. And a lot of that is related to how my time in, um, in ex-gay ministry, in my time in um, more... Uh, holding to a side A theology, all of these things, um, how those interact. And again, talked about that before. But uh, yeah, this was a really fun one. Michelle and I obviously uh, were friends, so we got along really well. And this is really one of the only episodes that I ever recorded uh, where I had the other person in the room with me. That's not happened a ton of times. I can count it on less than one hand. Uh, So, but that was always, that's always fun because I don't get to do it a lot. So anyway, with that, we're going to listen to a clip here from that episode where Michelle and I talk about a little of our community and what family and friendship look like for us. No community, not even a, no sing like romantic relationship, no community group, no church, no family can meet everyone's needs. Yeah. You're always going to have points when you feel lonely. Right. And so I don't want people to think that what I'm saying is, oh, with this, my life is perfect and I never like want for anything. Right. But it's that's not the case. Right. I think um I think that, you know, we get into this whole habit of being social and we have so many different groups and stuff. And so it's easy to be like, oh, my family is amazing. So they're everything. Or like, I think a lot of people try to have a lot of different friend groups, but then then we kind of find that point where they don't meet our needs. And I feel like those are the moments where it's like, that's when God's like, but I should be the one filling your exactly. needs. And, um, and I think that's just so important. I think having a good group of friends and because, I mean, even just for me as a single, as a single straight woman, I mean, it gets hard for me sometimes I get lonely and I deal with, um, just, you know, wondering, do my friends even like me? Am I ever going to find someone like where, like just, you know, dealing with those questions, but 
you know, having those different groups of friends and having just a strong community around me where I can be like, Hey, I'm struggling with this. Can y'all pray for me? Mm -hmm. I think that's, that's a huge thing that is not, a lot of people are scared to have, but it's so important. Yeah. And I think that's so true because it's like, you know, a few months ago, I think when it was for your birthday, Mm -hmm. when we went out yeah, and we had that conversation, like we were all hanging out and asking Ryan why he hates us. Um, which none of you get that joke and it's fine. Um, but we were asking him why he hates us. And then we got into a conversation about dating and singleness and loneliness. And like, I was sharing about how I was really lonely Yeah. and I was really struggling with feeling like I, you know, I don't know, like with the whole dating situation and, and being alone and all of this, you know, I was going through like all of that kind of stuff. And being able to have you guys share your perspective and your, like, situations, I think it was also good. Like, I always try to balance my friends between, like, I have my side B friends. Mm -hmm. And I have my friends that are not side B. Because I think for me, it always helps me remember that, first of all, like, having friends, and not just side B versus, like, straight. I think it's also a matter of, like, having friends that are similar to me versus different than me. Mm -hmm. Because... The friends that are similar to me, obviously, they get my problems, you know, like, without, you know, my side B friends understand when I say what I'm feeling. They're like, oh, yep, I know. Yeah. I get it. Yeah. But then it's also good to have people that maybe don't have the exact same issues as you, because then many times you'll find that you actually do have similar issues, yeah. but you didn't think that you did. Exactly. And then you realize, wow, okay. It's like, like just because our sexualities are different doesn't mean that emotionally it's not it's very similar. Yeah, yeah, it's it's actually interesting because the in past week it's it's only been one week, but I decided a while ago that I don't really have a lot of straight male friends, so I need more straight males in my life, <laughs> um, straight men in my life, and so I started going to a men's group, and really for the purpose of I, I went to a men's group where it was all straight guys, um, at least. To my knowledge. <laughs> to my knowledge, it's all straight men. Um, but what what I'm saying with all of that is it's I feel like those places, they're difficult, first of all, because, yeah. you know, you're hearing people dating. But, you know, and, and having things that maybe necessary I don't, you know, can't have. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's really good to then be able to hear people say what they're wrestling through and what they're going through and be like, oh, wow, you know what? Like, I deal with that. And... So it's it's not that uncommon, you yeah. know? I think even for me, that's been something good to hear from married couples. Because uh-huh. I'll hear sometimes married couples feel like, I'm so alone. And I'm like, oh, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> it's like marriage is not the end all. Marriage is not the end all. And I'm not, I hope you guys don't take away from this that like, I'm always feeling lonely. No, I'm not no. always feeling lonely. But I do feel lonely And marriage is great. And marriage but... is great. But um, I, I feel like sometimes we, f- we always feel like we have to put our best face forward. In even in, in our communities, like oh yeah. my community's great and we have no problems, or my life is great, we have no problems, and it's like if we really open up about all of our problems, we'd probably realize that everyone else is having similar things. Yeah, you know. So, I, I think that's something very important that we many times don't talk about 
and and we forget yeah the importance of that and i think that's with you that's something that you try to do is you definitely try to be open about your story and you definitely try to be like hey i'm dealing with this or i'm struggling with this so that people that are struggling with similar things or that are going through similar things they can be like oh there's someone that i can identify with because i thought that i was by myself in this yeah and so I think that's important also is just being open and vulnerable Uh and just reaching that place where you're like, you know what, maybe nobody understands, but I'm still going to put myself out there in the hope that someone does because Mm -hmm. like then it's all of a sudden that's what grows community is being vulnerable and being like, this is what I'm struggling with. Yeah. And then you never know who's going to come out and be like, me too. Exactly. Really. To our younger listeners who may be wondering, what is that sound effect at the beginning of the clip and the end of the clip? Well, trying to be on theme, that is the sound of a cassette tape. You may not even know what that is, but it's our logo. I know that may be shady, but Gen Z, sorry. Anyway, I have always loved having Michelle on the podcast, and she probably will be back on. Um as one of our honorary straight voices, the very few. I think we've only actually had, what, three people? Straight people? I think I might have talked about this when we talked about Lisa, because Lisa was another one. And I think the only other one is Julia Sadusky. I may be wrong. Please write in. Let me know if I'm missing someone, potentially. Anyway, um, we're going to move on to number four. And this is another very uh, popular one, probably because, uh, well, for multiple reasons, multiple reasons. First of all, uh, well, this is the episode with Meg, season one, episode one. Uh, We have always uh, gotten a lot of great feedback on this episode. And, you know, this is I think we've had Meg on three times altogether. She came on for this one, and then we did the follow-up question response episode, and then she came on and talked... Oh, no, four! Because then she came on for the uh, race um, discussion, one of the race discussions, and then she came on for uh, the coronavirus episode. So we love having uh, Meg on. And Meg is someone I adore. She is so um, very articulate, very um, wise in her words. Uh, she has so much wisdom for like a 20, 30 something year old. And I can't imagine the amount of wisdom she's going to have when she's in her 50s or 60s. Dear Lord. Um, anyway, but uh, yeah, I'm so glad that Meg is like the OG of Life on Side B guests, that she was the first one that came on and just set the tone for this entire podcast. It I could not think of anyone better to do that. Just simply talking about communal living and all this stuff. You know, Meg and I have worked uh, um, together uh, over multiple years, and she was actually one of the first, like, celibate gay people I ever met when I went to a posture shift event. And then when we both worked at posture shift, got to know each other more. And I am so excited for this new endeavor that she's on doing, uh, working, starting the organization kaleidoscope. And I'm sure as, 
um, her and her partner, Elizabeth, get all of that underway. We're definitely going to have her back on and Elizabeth on to talk about everything they're doing over there. But that's a whole nother conversation for another time. But I loved this, this initial conversation we had with Meg, getting to talk about intentional community, communal living, something that has been so important in her life. Um, she's actually in a new house since the house that she talks about there. And um, I think it's so important. So many of the things that she shares in this episode related to what it's like to really embody communal living, not just in friend group or anything, but to actually know our neighbors, to have them in our lives, to share life with the people that we share a home with. So we're going to listen to a clip from that conversation where um, Meg shares a little bit about her thoughts on language. And more specifically, uh, one of the things I loved about that conversation was where she talked about more the theology of community and chosen family and these kind of themes within scripture. So here we go. A clip from Meg on communal living. Yeah, but I totally get what you mean about communal celibacy, which I think is really a huge point, especially being side B, because I think a lot of times when we as side B LGBT people and -hmm. we're considering what it means to live out like, okay, this is my belief and my conviction on sexuality, on marriage. And normally our our mind automatically goes to, I'm going to be alone forever. Yes. And, and speaking of all these yeah. language connotations, celibacy, that's what people think. They're like, exactly. oh my gosh, I'm never going to have sex. I'm always going to be my, by myself. I'm going to be like this old cat lady in <laughs> away my sexual frustrations. Yeah. And that's another thing that I believe about language is that it's one of many things in our culture that can either lean towards decay or be redeemed. Yes. And I'd like to see the word celibacy redeemed to yes. be this word that's all about exclusion, what you can't do, mm-hmm. but the things that you are positively and actively pursuing. Absolutely. I yeah. even have this joke that I want to redeem the word spinster, yes. <laughs> which is an outdated term for like a woman who never gets married, which is like <laughs> the nightmare of like every 1800s woman or whatever. But it's it kind of sounds like history. I think it's kind of like... If it didn't have that connotation to it, it could be a really cool word. So, I could totally I see that word being like <laughs> renewed. Like, yes, I am. Because it almost, it sounds so much like hipster. I yeah. could just see it just becoming like, yes, I am a spinster. And yes. what? Like, oh Hashtag my gosh, that is so spinster awesome. Spinster goals. <laughs> that is awesome. <laughs> yeah. I didn't choose I, the spinster life. Actually, <laughs> oh wait, I did. I did choose it. It chose me. No. <laughs> Well, I think it also kind of like what you were talking about is, it, I, I can't, I, I think it was Nate Collins who one time said it. And uh, if I find that I'm wrong, I'll, I'll, I will correct it. But I love how he said, like, the thing that we need to do is find the, the church, the conservative church has been so good at finding the no for LGBT people. Yeah. No, you can't do this. No, you can't do that. No, you. And that's not even mm-hmm. honestly just LGBT people. We're so good at, at telling people what they can't do. And yeah, I think especially in the realm of sexuality. No. Yes. You can frame it exactly. negatively, like, okay, kids, we're going to learn about sex. Here's all the bad things. Here's all the bad things that you, things that you do. can't do. 
yeah and in reality like sex is a gift from god and if we can frame it positively and share that vision of here's all that it can be and should be and that god made it to be and that's beautiful and to in order to celebrate that we also need to look at what is the best context for that and i'd like to see celibacy like that too it's not like oh here's all the things you can't do but like here's the beauty of singleness and celibacy and here's like jesus lived this life and look how abundant and significant and god-honoring that life was yeah and then we can look at the limits of that through the framework of the beauty of what that Mm -hmm. looks like well yeah and i think that's like a great transition into because i also wanted to get your thoughts on how do you see the Bible connecting to your view on communal living? Because obviously, yes, you know, the Bible loves to talk about communal living, but I would just love to hear about mm-hmm. how that, how yeah. that has played a part in your whole thing. I love that question. Let's see. I think for when it comes to, especially like LGBT sexuality, a lot of people, they're like, Oh, the only time the Bible mentions that is these like six verses or whatever. Mm-hmm. And when I look at my views on sexuality, I don't, I was never really super influenced by those six verses. I know people have a lot of opinions about them, but when I formed my own views about sexuality, it was always more about this greater narrative in the scriptures mm-hmm. about, I guess, starting in Genesis where there's this God who exists as Trinity. And there's these three persons of the Trinity. They are perfectly unified as God, but they're also intrinsically different and their love produces life in other people. And there's this openness and there's this creativity and this opportunity and possibility. And from that image stems humankind. And so there's male and female and they're different, but they're also the same in a way that like no other animal was the same as Adam. Eve was this person who was just like Adam, but, mm-hmm. but also different in a beautiful way. And so anyway, in the Old Testament, I see a very biological representation of the Trinity. And I won't get super deep into like theology, the body or things like that. But uh, I guess what I want to point out about the Old Testament is that God's promise tends to be passed down through biological family. So you Mm -hmm. have the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and there's this lineage and there's this biological, like fulfilling of the commission mandate to be fruitful and multiply. Right. Mm -hmm. So that happens for just hundreds and hundreds of years. And then Jesus comes and he was born into this biological lineage where there was this promise that was passed down through this people, through this family that became a tribe, that became a nation that was set apart and they were unique because of this biological thing. But when Jesus came, he had this totally different idea of family. You know, Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And I think in, in a very real way, that was also what he did with family. So, Jesus didn't get married. He didn't have kids. He was also the guy who people would say, hey, Jesus, your mother and brothers are here. And he'd be like, my mother and brothers are the people who do the will of God. 
Oh my gosh, that passage, like when I read that passage, but like really read it, that was honestly one of the biggest ones that changed like my own personal. Yes. Yeah. It's revolutionary. And like everything Jesus did was just revolutionary and also prophesied. So it wasn't, it shouldn't have been new. It was new and it's cool that it's new. But so he didn't, he didn't have this biological family and it's not that Jesus saying, oh, family's bad marriage is bad we should all just be single because marriage is bad because like no marriage was the first human relationship and it yeah. existed before the fall and it's a good thing mm-hmm. but he's also saying with his life there's something more here and i'm not going to abolish biological family but there's something even greater than that mm-hmm. and that is the kingdom of god and the family of god and when you when you look at the sociological implications of that there was this there were the israelites and then there was like well there were there were the jews and then there were everyone else right and there's this huge separation and the jews were this amazing set apart people group with this really unique culture and traditions and they were seen as very clean and there were the gentiles who were this heathen group of people that were separate and the work that jesus did on the cross was basically to say my salvation is for everyone. My family is for everyone. And this spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father, that is something that whether you're like biologically in God's family, being descended from these patriarchs, or whether you've been adopted in, you're his family. So the cross is really unique too, because what, what God the Father did is he saw, he took his own begotten son which in our in our understanding would almost be like a biological son and he traded this son for adopted sons and daughters and he was basically saying i'm i'm almost going to forsake this directly begotten thing so that i can adopt you into my family in a real way and so in looking at the new testament it's not that god's promise is brought through biological family but it's actually propagated through spiritual family. Mm. And at, before Jesus descends into heaven, he has this kind of last will and testament. And he says, you know, go, as you go, make disciples of all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So in that commission, it's a similar commission to that original Genesis commission mandate of be fruitful and multiply. And there's still this representation of the trinity uh in baptism and yet the the multiplication that he's asking for is actually a spiritual multiplication so with all that said (laughs) i know that i know that was a lot but um i love it preach so when we when i look at this i'm like okay jesus did this amazing radical thing and we look at community and we're like okay like the early church and then the church and now the modern church and we have a lot of this programming we talk about like doing life together but we're still really really focused on biological family yeah and people who are single people who are lgbt people who have been divorced people who are single parents orphans uh kids in the foster system we we talk about wanting to care for them but our the structure of our church family is still very nuclear and yeah. 
I think if we had a vision and an imagination to look beyond that and say, you know what, like spiritual family is where it's at. And like, uh, almost like water is thicker than blood Mm. in the family of God. Like spiritual Mm. family is like, even can transcend biological family. I think if we could just be creative about that and seek what God could do there with possibilities, it could just totally change the way that the church is a witness to a lonely world. I feel like after my comment in the last segment, I need to reassure, I do love all of our Gen Z listeners. All of you, you are amazing. Many of you I know by name and I know personally as friends, love you all. Anyway, um, (laughs) felt like that needed to be said. And now we're going to move into number three, which is Joel on sex and porn. Um, Joel is a really great friend of mine. We have grown to be really close over the years of knowing each other. And so it was such a blessing to have him on the podcast and share about some of these questions that honestly we want to talk so much more about because there are a lot of questions around sex and porn and, and like what, how do you maintain your convictions? If your convictions, like whatever your convictions are around sexuality and how you live that out, how do you ultimately live practically within your convictions. What does that look like? How do you deal with it when you don't live up to your convictions? So I'm so glad that Joel's episode was really one of our first episodes to touch on that topic and that between him and Becca got to talk a little bit about different male, female experiences. And this is definitely a topic many of you have asked for more content on and we definitely have stuff planned. So that is coming. But for now, we're going to listen to a clip where Joel and Becca talk about how do you deal with it when you don't live up to your convictions. When you are finally having to look at yourself, whether it is a time that you have just come under conviction for mistakes, um, patterns of sin that you may be struggling to get out of, Um, Maybe someone has caught you or confronted you with something that's going on. What are some ways um, that you have dealt with it or that you have seen other people deal with those seasons of just continued failure in our lives and trying to be more like Christ? When you don't see your actions lining up with your beliefs when they're related to sexuality, how do you how do you walk through those seasons? Yeah, well, and that's those seasons. That's such a big thing, too, because. I, I grew up in a, a quote unquote Christian household. Both of my parents are believers. Um, so, you know, did the whole thing where was in, in the church, you know, all throughout that season and then got very involved with it and uh, later on in life. And one of the things that I can recall from the, that season, that childhood season and going into high school as well is the constant feeling of overwhelming soul crushing guilt Yes. when I would fall into habitual sin, or I shouldn't say fall into as if I had my eyes closed. I knew what I was doing. And so maybe a better way to say it would be when I would choose to continue to act out in habitual sin. 
in my case, you know, growing up, <clears throat> it was a lot of porn, it was a lot of masturbation, stuff like that. And so it was, <laughs> it was a daily, it was a daily thing. And so it would be the same cycle where I would wake up in the morning, I would know, I would know that later on that evening that I would go look at something online and I would kind of go throughout the entire day, not looking forward to it, but almost having this like internal struggle of, oh, I know that I shouldn't. And I know that I ultimately don't want to. And at the same time, I do want it. And I know that even though I'm having the struggle, I know that I'm going to give in. And then afterwards, after I act out or whatever, then having that, I am disgusting. I am the worst. You know, what, what, how can I call myself a believer and, and things like that? And what made it more difficult was that, you know, I, I would try to go to scripture often and look for encouragement, look for comfort. And sometimes just in my lack of knowledge or lack of understanding, I would land on verses and read them not knowing or not understanding that they weren't really applying to me in the way that I thought they would. So I would read in First John, which is such a beautiful book written to people that claim to be followers of Christ, giving them encouragement about the assurance of their salvation. And yet I would read verses about like, no one who is in Christ continues in sin. And I would be like, well, uh-oh, I seem to be, I feel like I'm continuing in sin. I give into this particular sin on a daily basis and I call myself a believer. So does this scripture mean that I'm really not? And so my pattern would look like almost essentially begging God to forgive me, not feeling forgiven, not feeling cleansed. And so trying desperately to earn uh, salvation, earn forgiveness, even though I had prayed for salvation. In fact, I prayed for salvation so many times because I didn't feel, you know, yeah, I didn't feel saved. I didn't feel changed or anything like that. So I lived like that for a very long time, which only contributed to a lot of confusion. And, you know, like, Lord, if, if, if the gospel is good news, why doesn't it feel good? Why don't I feel, you know, why don't I feel freedom? Why don't I feel sufficiency, you know, in your power or anything like that? Right. And it really wasn't until college. It wasn't until late college, honestly, that I started to realize that what I was lacking was faith in the gospel. Um, yes, I had absolutely placed my faith in Jesus. I knew that he was who he said he was and that I believed uh, that he did die for my sins. But I think what I was having a problem with faith was believing the rest of everything right. in his word. Yeah. So believing, for instance, you know, one of my one of my verses that I I memorize and recite back to myself often, first John one nine. You know, it says that as we confess our sins, you know, as we tell God that we're we're sorry for the things that we've done that were uh, in opposition to his will, that he promises to forgive us and to cleanse us, and that he does that because of his goodness and his justice and everything like that. And so if I choose 
to wallow and say, God, please forgive me. I don't feel like you've forgiven me. That what I'm ultimately doing is saying, you know what, God, I don't think that you're actually being truthful when you say things like that. When you say that you've taken away all my sin, yeah, I hear those words, but I don't really believe you. And so because I don't believe you, I'm going to act as though that's not the case. And so as I started to come to that realization, that had a dramatic effect on, okay, if I am confess, if I know that I have my relationship with Jesus, then I also need to have faith that Jesus has cleansed my sin. And so when I confess those sins, not to, not to restore my relationship, my relationship is, is held together by Christ, but my fellowship with him that I have to believe, I have to have that faith that Jesus has restored me to fellowship with him, that he has cleansed me. And therefore, I need to view myself not through the lens of feeling bad about what I've just done, but instead view myself through God's eyes towards me, which is in Jesus, which is that I'm pure and holy regardless of what I've done because the price has been paid for me. And so therefore, it was an identity shift. It was an identity change. I was no longer looking at all my failures and as though God was like a cosmic cop waiting to squash me. But instead, it was a, no, God's view of me is the same as that of Christ, that he loves me, you know, that he chose me, that he's given me all these blessings. And so it forced me to change the way I viewed myself, which inherently meant that it started to change the way that I dealt with sin or dealt with my own failures. So forgiving myself, viewing myself through God's lens was the first, was probably one of the most monumental, one of the biggest things that was a practical step, if that makes sense. That does. That is um, looking at those, they, they seem so subtle now, but I remember when I was in that stage of understanding those differences, how life altering it was to realize that difference between restoring fellowship and restoring relationship. Mm -hmm. Like you didn't have to start over every single time. Like I could get in a fight with my parents and they're still my parents. We just have to restore fellowship. And understanding that was life altering for me as far as dealing with shame and with guilt that I didn't have to go back to earn it every time. You don't have to readopt mm-hmm. God, you know, like that kind of understanding is I am his no matter what. We just need to reestablish fellowship. And really, yeah. really doing yeah. that and understanding that. Um, yeah, that idea of like that almost morbidly looking forward to your own failure, um, <laughs> like sitting in those <laughs> seasons of like being a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, I know that for me, a lot of that goes back to really just some old school memorizing scripture. Um, yes. There's a reason I've hidden my, your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. Um, I learned that one so long ago. I have it memorized in King James, which, you know, it was probably one of the first <laughs> that I memorized, but to know it and to be able to um, bring that back to mind that when I finally got to the point of realizing it made active decisions to get into a pattern of sin. I was going to have to make active decisions to get out of it. 
that that renewing your mind was the single most important part for me, that it was literally taking every thought captive and making it obedient and having that kind of thing that I could just pull up, even just fragments of scripture as I was thinking that if I'm looking at, well, I know tonight when I get home that this is what I'm going to do and this is what I'm going to look at because it has been a rough day and I need to find something to distract myself. That never worked. But if I could bring to mind some passage of, you know, God never puts us in a situation of being tempted beyond what we can bear, but he will always provide a way out of it so that we can stand up underneath whatever. And I couldn't tell you where the passage was. I couldn't probably tell you the whole verse, but it was enough that the Holy Spirit could bring Mm -hmm. mind and say, if I'm being tempted with this, I have a savior who's given me a way out of it. And when I began to actively look for the way out and to look for him, that's when those actively began to change. Yeah. Really being able to see that um, was the hard part because you can be in such a season of just defeat and deception of yourself um, that you can't see those ways out. But it really does come down to that. Are you going to believe yourself or are you going to believe Jesus who says, that he loves you and that he died for you and that his way is best. And so who are you going to trust? Who are you going to believe? Um, And for a long time, I just liked believing myself. We're now getting into the top two. Number two is one that I extremely, extremely am fond of because I really, really enjoyed this episode. Um, This is Matt on Celibate Partnerships. Right from the get-go of doing season one, um, I knew celibate partnerships would be a part of the conversation because there's not many places where they do get space to be talked about, even within side B. Um, They'll many times get mentioned. They will many times get referenced to, but not really get a voice of their own. We don't really hear from um, from people in celibate partnerships. Many times that's because they're very quiet. Um, It's not really a thing accepted either in the broader LGBTQ community as well as within the church. So um, many times the people that are in them are quiet themselves. So it was really, really an honor to have Matt on to talk about his partnership and just his vulnerability and everything that he shared. It was so, so encouraging to hear. And it's an episode that we have continued to get messages on that people were really, um, really, really glad to see featured Um, because there are so many ways that LGBT people can find community. This is just one of those ways. But again, it's one that we don't usually get to hear from a lot. So in this clip, there's actually going to be two clips. So you're going to hear the cassette tape. You're going to hear the cassette tape again, and it'll go into a second clip because I really had a hard time figuring out which clip to um, show from this. I know in the one with Max on the last episode, we um, listened to where he defined a partnership. And um, we're going to listen to that part of Matt as well, because I love, love, love how um, he goes about how they've come to understand a partnership, that it's not just a definition. Um, even as Max said in his, in his thing, many people will define it very many different ways. But I love how Matt 
has come about emphasizing the importance of prioritizing and um, that it is the commitment that makes it many times very unique. It's what makes it different than both marriage as well as both um, a a best friendship. So um, we're going to listen to that. And then we're going to listen to him talk a little bit about the difficulties, namely the kind of self-editing, as he says. What do partners call themselves? Because uh, from talking to people in partnerships, that is definitely a major thing that many go through. So anyway, we're going to go ahead, listen first to the discussion on what is a partnership and then what are the difficulties, especially in the area of self-editing. The truth of the matter is, is that I think as I go along in this partnership, I understand less and less really what it is. We kind of went into this together, having some vague general shared ideas about what it was. But then as we've gone along, we realized that some of the best kind of definitions that have come our way or some of the best thoughts about what make a celibate partnership, what it is, have only come to us after we've received a question from either friends who are curious about what we're doing or some other psyche person who may be critical about what we're doing or just people who are saying, you know, here you two guys are doing this thing and we have no way to make sense of this. And here are our questions. And each time we receive a question like that, it really forces us to kind of sit down and think and say, wow, we actually don't necessarily have the greatest answer for this offhand. So we kind of need to go circle back together and uh, work through that and then get back to you. It's sort of like the celibate partnership is this real thing that we share, but there's a lot about it that we haven't exactly put our finger on yet. And so that outside input has been really, really invaluable um, Mm -hmm. to help us down that path. And I think, huh, um, two questions in particular have come up most frequently for us. The first question is, okay, so like in our case, just to be clear, we don't live together. We don't live in the same city, but even if we did live in the same city, we actually would not be living together. And there are various reasons why we've made that choice. Mm -hmm. Um, So when we present that fact to people, they're like, okay, so really at the end of the day, you know, you guys are not sexually active. You're not living in the same city. What is the difference between what you're doing and just a best friendship? And probably like the first 20 times we received that question, we said, wow, we don't really actually have the greatest answer for this. So we went back and we thought about it. And I think the the first answer that we came to was to say, look, I think despite, again, despite the fact that we're not sexually active, this relationship is in its own way, if not based in at the very least, like constantly referencing the issue of sexuality. Yeah. Right. We came together entirely because of this shared conviction and of this shared idea that we're going to walk this path together. And so we can't help but make that at the center of our relationship in some way. We have to talk about it. We have to work through the struggles together. Um, We have to be there for each other, um, especially in moments when, frankly, we might be attracted to each other and discuss what that means. And we just didn't see that a best friendship started from that point like we Mm -hmm. thought that that was kind of a critical difference other people might disagree i don't know 
and then the other question that we got a lot was, okay, so you're talking about priority as being this big idea for a celibate partnership and that you want to have someone to prioritize over anybody else in your life. And when they were saying, well, I can prioritize my best friend over anybody else in my life if I so choose. And in fact, many people say well, they do prioritize their best friends yeah. um, over anybody else. So what's really the difference between that and you? And so again, we got that and then we kind of took some time and thought it through. And I guess the answer we came up for that question was that we, we call it the priority transfer problem. So the idea is that if you're, <laughs> if you're a person who's prioritizing your best friend, say that both of those people find spouses and get married, right? Mm -hmm. You could transfer that priority that you're giving to your best friend to your spouse really, really easily. Yes. Um, and without there being any difficulty coming up between you. In fact, it would be a moment of congratulation, right? In our relationship, to take that priority and to give it to anybody else with, I don't know, maybe the exception of like taking on a religious order of some sort, uh, it could not be a congratulatory moment. Like that would signal that something yeah. fundamental has changed in the relationship and mm -hmm. it probably wouldn't be a positive outcome. So at this point, those are kind of the best insights and answers that we've got about it what would you say has been your biggest struggle and blessing from being in a celibate partnership i think like the biggest struggle that we've faced again i think has been trying to understand how we present ourselves publicly in a lot of different mm -hmm. ways mm -hmm. you know um to each other we call ourselves partners Mm -hmm. And to the people in our lives who we have had the big explanations with, who understand everything about the, what we're doing, you know, who don't need to be reminded that this or that thing isn't going on, you know, we call ourselves partners. Mm -hmm. But depending on which type of community we go into, there's a lot of self-editing that we end up doing. Yeah. And, you know, that's, that's challenging um, because... Like, for example, when we go into like a, a, a more traditionalist Christian environment, if we were to say that we're partners and that automatically conjures up all these thoughts in people and you then have to do a lot of backpedaling. And frankly, it's kind of a lost cause by that yeah. point. And people have already formed their opinions of you. So, you know, we, we have different words. Like we say, oh, we're like really close friends or just friends or you know, whatever idea pops into our head at the moment, kind of really just situationally dependent. Mm -hmm. When we go into an environment where people are side A, sometimes we're also a little res reticent there to call ourselves partners as well, because, um, you know, that gives off a sense that we're, I don't know if belonging is the right word, but um, you know, that we're speaking the exact same language as everybody else. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it may seem a little bit disingenuous to, to present ourselves that way. So there's yeah. a little bit of difficulty in using the language there. You know, in talking with our families, there are, I, I don't think the issue of, you know, conservative traditionalists or progressive, um, whatever is, is so much the issue there. I think sometimes it's just 
with families, it can be just difficult to get this idea before them and to have them wrap their minds fully around it. Yeah. So that's why the word partner sometimes doesn't come out there either. Um, so yeah, I mean, just as we go from situation to situation, a fair amount of self-editing that we have to do and we have to think a lot about just the words we're using to describe ourselves. So that's, that, that can just get a little tiring from time. Oh yeah. I mean like Mm -hmm. that's, that's something I continually, I feel like that is a constant struggle that I hear about from a lot of celibate couples Mm -hmm. is what do we call ourselves? (laughs) Like, what do I call you and what do you call me? And, and I think that's that whole thing of this kind of being in a sense, a new category of relationship that really the other categories that we have in our brain as Westerners doesn't, it doesn't really fit any of them perfectly. Yeah. And so trying to figure out, maybe we need to just come up with a brand new term, but um, all of that to say, I know that that is a huge issue. And I think that really relates to the whole thing of what you said before is that this is not a marriage without sex. And this is not that, like, this is something different. And so therefore the terminology is going to be hard to find. It is. Um, And I don't know that it's something that we're going to have a clear answer for Mm -hmm. anytime soon, perhaps in our lifetimes. I think, you know, this is something that I think gay people in general can relate to is like how self-editing can just become second nature. Yes, you know, and how you just you just do it so effortlessly after a while, mm-hmm. and you forget, like it 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 still remains a lot of work, and you still are tired out by it. But there's a strange way that you don't feel you don't like consciously think about the fact that you're being tired out by it all the time. You just, you're just do so it. used to do it. You just do it, right? And I don't know. So maybe we had a lot of practice in store for doing this together. Great. I don't know. <laughs> right. I know. Oh, geez. The life. Um, oh, no. It's really true. I've even noticed I do it without thinking. I'm like, whoa, that's not right. It is not. Like, I'll just talk and I'll just, I'll just share something. I'm like, that's actually not true. But that's just my <laughs> editing happening. But sure, why not? We'll just go with that because I don't really feel like re-explaining now. I mean, you know, you can only deal with so many problems in one day. So yeah. sometimes a little self-editing might just be, you know, the expedient thing to do. Absolutely. Yeah. So then on the flip side of that, what would you say is the biggest blessing that's come out of your partnership? Well, I mean, it's, it's been him, you know. Um, I think, uh, you know, just having the opportunity to mm-hmm. get to know someone very, very deeply, you know, to be there day after day to, again, like share struggles and, share hurts, but also to share joys and hopes and, you know, to really dedicate myself to understanding another person. It, it, it opens your sense of mystery up in so many ways, right? Like just to how complex people are, even if they, you know, at first glance, you know, you can't see they're in a complexity. Like there's nothing like getting to know another person at that level that really helps you see, um, <laughs> just everything that can go and go on inside any given person. So I I think there's that like kind of high level thing that's gone on for me there. Finally, we made it to number one. Um, Some of you may already know which episode this is uh, because you've, I think we've mentioned it on the life on side B Twitter 
and um, a few other places randomly. But this episode has consistently stayed number one. Um, really ever since the first month that it aired, um, it rose up and it talked. In, and I think it actually does say something for the fact that this is number one, especially respective to Matt on Celibate Partnerships being number two. So number one, most listened to episode is Dean on mixed orientation marriage. Makes kind of sense. Um, again, these are things that um, I, I'm really glad that now there's being a lot more resources on mixed orientation marriage. We now have Lori Krieg's book, which has come out. Um, Revoice has done a lot in the area of giving space for mixed orientation marriage as well. And really helping people to navigate them well, even just approaching them from the beginning in a very healthy and holistic way. And um, this actual conversation was recorded from my bedroom in the Airbnb uh, Revoice (laughs) in 2019. Um, Dean, who is a dear, dear friend, love him so much. Um, He he drove over and, and came and we sat in the bedroom with a microphone. Again, one of those other very few times that I've gotten to sit with someone in person while interviewing them and talk. And we talked about so much related to mixed orientation marriage. And even as a person who I've known for a while that that was not going to be something that I pursued for my own life, it was really, really good. I learned so, so much about the unique challenges and beauty of a mixed orientation marriage for queer people. And um, so in this clip, we're going to talk about, we're going to hear Dean explain a bit about what are some of the unique challenges that couples in a mixed orientation marriage must face? What does that look like? What are some advice on how to deal with those challenges in a healthy, holistic way? So we're going to jump in and hear that clip now. You know, obviously there are challenges. There's many, I think there's many challenges that mixed orientation couples Mm -hmm. face that are, are just general to couples. Yeah. But there are extra challenges. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I guess, first of all, I would love to hear about, um, I, I just want to ask you, what would you say are the biggest things you've seen that are helpful into a successful mixed orientation marriage? So if whether that's things to do before the marriage or during the marriage, but within those special nuances of a mixed orientation marriage, what have you found are like really key factors for a successful mixed orientation marriage? The first one that comes to mind is a very clear, a very clear understanding of each other's sexual needs. Mm. Like that's the, when we're talking about something unique to mixed orientation marriage, that's the first thing. Cause I I was thinking, you were saying this, and I'm thinking through all these things going, no, that's any marriage. No, that's any marriage. No, that's yeah. any marriage. And so when it comes to a mixed orientation marriage, and I guess this is still any marriage, but a mixed orientation marriage, there's clear sexual needs. Uh, because because you're approaching this from two different sexualities, mm-hmm. the expectations, the desires, what is uh, what is all, all those things, it, it, it can be very, very different. Um, and as well what can t- what can happen is that the one of the partners can um really kind of almost get like inside their heads mm. if they are 
if something does not click immediately sexually, yeah. which a lot of times things don't immediately click sexually anyway, anyway. for every couple. Uh, there's always going to be that struggle to make sure you're completely in line sexually, which you'll never probably be completely in line. There's going to be ebbs and flows in everyone's life. But one of the things that can kind of seep in with a mixed orientation marriage is the question, is the sexual struggle, is the, or is the sexual relationship, is it not as in tune as it could be because of the different orientation mm-hmm. or because of different expectations um, mm-hmm. and desires and it, it can that can get really sticky because yeah one of them can sow a lot of doubt and so uh-huh. a lot of fear inside yes. the partners the other one is just you know you just need to have the conversations and so i would say that the for mixed orientation marriage one of the big things is that clear conversation of here is what i desire sexually here are my needs here's what i want to do here is what i'm expecting Mm-hmm. Um, and here's what helps me feel most love and desired. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that needs to be very clear in the marriage because without that, you have the potential to let a lot of doubt and fear seep into each other, mm-hmm. into the relationship. And then you have to start rooting that out later. Uh, if that, you know, if that keeps growing and as soon as there's maybe, uh, an issue within the sexual relationship, which every couple has that every couple runs into, uh, uh, runs into a snag in the sexual relationship where someone doesn't perform the way they want to, or someone's not quite satisfied or something happens. And suddenly there's the the question of, Oh my gosh, did, did we make a mistake by getting married? Mm. Did we make a mistake because, I should have married someone with the same orientation or I should have married someone with my desired gender, with the gender I'm primarily attracted to. And if you don't have that conversation on the get go, then when those problems happen, the doubt seeps in and suddenly you are having to go through and have more of those conversations and they get a lot more difficult the longer you let them sit. Yeah. So that's the first thing that's probably unique to mixed orientation marriage. That makes sense. Um, and I think the second thing would be the discussion of uh, how open will each of you be about sexuality Mm. Uh, because there can be one partner who is, you know, very much open about their sexuality and the other partner is not very open about sexuality. And so then how do you find a balance there Mm -hmm. where one partner does not feel that they're too exposed by their partner sharing everything, Mm -hmm. but the other partner is not feeling held back or pushed into a closet, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, Having that conversation as well, it's like, hey, how much are we going to share? Who do we share this with? Mm-hmm. Uh, who knows? Is the is uh, Will one partner be out and the other partner not? Will both partners be out? Mm-hmm. Which, if one partner's straight, there's not like much to be out about, I yeah. guess. Like, yeah. I'm straight. Yeah, everyone pretty much knows. Congratulations. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> um, you know, but like, Still having that that conversation of, okay, this is a unique situation. Mm-hmm. So are we going to be out and open about the fact that our marriage is mixed orientation? Uh, mm-hmm. If so, what does that look like? Is it just being open in your community but not like posting it on Facebook? I don't know that Facebook has like the little in mixed orientation marriage yet. Uh, <laughs> Who it, knows? It might be coming. <laughs> it might be coming. Who knows? Yeah. Honestly, they have complicated. So I guess, you know, there's that option. Um <laughs> But yeah, like, you know, how open will you be about that? Because again, most couples don't 
have to worry about that. It's, it's assumed if you see a regular heterosexual couple that they are both straight uh, and they are both sexually active with each other. Like, yeah. there's that kind of assumption. Uh-huh. Uh, but if you have a couple that one partner, let's say the husband comes out as asexual and the wife is still straight, there's the question, okay, well, how does that work? Yeah. Do you... Do you, and then people are asking very invasive questions. Do you, do you have sex? Uh-huh. That's a great question. <laughs> Thank you. Don't you love how people feel it's their business to get into your business? <laughs> yep. I mean, I know that's kind of what we're doing here, but at the same time. At the same time. <laughs> it's the people like, you know, that, that like are. They do it involuntary. <laughs> yeah. The neighbors who are like, so I heard. And uh-huh. you're like, oh, great. But it's the question to ask. Um, it, it's the, it's the. Conversation that has to be approached, which is how open are we going to be? Single orientation marriages don't have to worry about that. Uh, Mixed orientation marriages do do have to worry about this question of how out are we going to be? Mm -hmm. And especially then if one partner starts to feel pressured or change. Mm -hmm. Let's say that they start off and both partners are fine keeping this kind of closed away. Uh, But let's say it's the wife who is bisexual. She feels the need to want to express that and be open about her sexuality and say, you know, this is something I I am bisexual. I'm married to a man, but I am bisexual. Well, is if that's changing, that's a conversation that needs to happen because you want both spouses to be on board with what is going forward. Mm -hmm. And if there's that disagreement, that can cause a lot of tension uh, because at that point, no matter what, someone's going to constantly be in conflict about that. If the husband doesn't want his wife to be out, then she's going to feel pushed back if the wife doesn't want to be out but the husband wants to be open as well then the wife could feel being like she's being pushed out invaded yeah Yeah. she's being invaded um and so yeah you have to have that conversation especially if things start to change if feelings start to change Mm -hmm. uh and a desire to come out or a desire to maybe could even be if a couple moves to a new location and one of them says hey i know we were open really at the last community could we not be open as much here? Mm-hmm. Again, that's a change, and that has to be approached in a conversation mm-hmm. to discuss why, to discuss the feelings of each partner, to discuss what is going to be the best way to resolve this and move forward. Yeah. And I guess that's where, like, both, and not one partner, and especially, but both partners have to understand the needs or the feelings of the other. Because, mm-hmm. you know, I think it's important, especially if it's a straight person with a non-straight person, mm-hmm. for the straight person to understand you know, the importance of being known yeah. as a non-straight person, you mm-hmm. know, that many times straight people take for, take advantage of and they yeah. don't understand that people just assume that you're straight mm-hmm. and you don't have to come out to people. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, especially if there was a, an agreement at the beginning of the marriage that mm-hmm. this is not going to be talked about yep. and then the other person changes, like, you know, being yeah. able to understand even at least the patience with yep. this your straight spouse is like, mm-hmm. okay, this is going to take time. Yeah. This is going to take adjustment or wh- however mm-hmm. it might work. You know, it's yeah. the discussion, you know, and, and I think a lot of what you're talking about sounds like it's also based on even just that initial honesty about what mm-hmm. your sexuality is like. Yep. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's, uh, I was very fortunate that I had told Lisa before we were even dating. Yeah. Um, I had come out to her, uh, gosh, more than a year before we'd even started dating before I'd even liked her. I had sat down with her and, uh, told her, you know, about my story. I told her my sexuality, told her uh, about my wrestling with gender identity. And so she knew all this, 
before uh-huh. we even approached the subject of dating, before that was even on the table for us. Yeah. And so it took out a lot of that concern of, okay, she likes me, but what if she finds out about this now? Mm-hmm. And I was very blessed and fortunate that that was the case because yeah. that's not always the case for everyone. But yeah, it was that, but that just kind of, again, we were fortunate because that just made it clear, like we always have to be honest about this up front because mm-hmm. if we let any of this lag behind, it's going to make it harder in the long run and we might encounter some issues or some problems or mm-hmm. just some conflict that could be very detrimental and yeah. hurtful to one or both of us. Well, y'all, that is it. We have finally gotten through all of the top 10 episodes. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed it. I hope it was enlightening. I hope it was a nice walk down memory lane. If you've already listened to all of these, maybe something new came out about one of these clips that didn't hit you the first time you listened to it. Sometimes that can happen. So um, I'm interested to see four years down the road, five years down the road, what our top 10 episodes are then. Many of them may not even be recorded yet or even be on our potential list of topics. So thank you for listening. Uh, Quick note, we had our Brilliant Bee patrons do another vote on um, their episode choice for a episode of the season. And the episode that has been chosen is abuse within Side B, specifically sexual abuse, sexual harassment, sexual assault. Um, we're going to be talking about, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a very heavy conversation. So um, if having a conversation around trauma, sexual abuse is something that you are not emotionally ready for whatever reason, it may not be an episode you want to listen to right away. But we really pray that this is going to be a um, very um, healing conversation for many. We're going to have some people on to share about their own experiences, even within Side B and outside Side B of sexual abuse and sexual assault, as well as um, getting... Um, some other perspectives on um, this conversation, especially from a therapist. Um, Brandon Polk's going to be back on and give us his thoughts as well. So we, I, I cannot wait to share it with you. Again, it's it's a heavy conversation. Do not feel pressured to, to listen to it right away if it is too heavy for you for whatever reason. But we're hoping that it can be a healing conversation and uh, a very much needed one within our community. So that will be coming up uh, on uh, in a week or two, um, and then we will get that, and we can't wait to continue all of these conversations with you all. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Remember, if you love this podcast, uh, review us on Apple or wherever you listen, subscribe, and um, join our Patreon page uh, and get more content. Join our Discord community. We'd love to have you there. Talk with us there. Anyway, have a great day. We'll talk to you next time. Bye. Thank you.